This morning we'll be in the 14th chapter of Luke. And this will conclude our tour through Luke's private parable reserve. We spent the last two weeks looking at parables that are unique to Luke's gospel. Riddles that are particularly helpful as he explains all the ways that the Lord is so unusually kind to all the people who are so unusually undeserving. We started a couple weeks ago in Luke 7 with the parable of the two debtors. And then last week we were in Luke 11 to see the odd parable of the reluctant neighbor and to hear the good news that God joyfully, delightedly answers the cries of his desperate people. So this morning we're going to head in for another awkward dinner party. But this time Jesus is the one picking the fight. This time Jesus is the troublemaker. Young Christians, growing and budding theologians, I'm sorry, I have three questions for you this morning. I know I said I was going to try and keep it simple here at the end of the summer. This isn't meant to be a pop quiz. All three questions are about one thing, but I do have three questions for you. And they're all about the kingdom of God. Are you ready? What is the kingdom of God like? Who gets in? And why? This is the good news of Jesus. It always makes an awkward first impression, but for those with ears to hear, its beauty is absolutely astounding. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told them a parable. He spoke it to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, Move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends, or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in, and return and repay you. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go and see it. 
please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Father in heaven, you have gathered us in the Spirit. You have gathered us for your worship this morning so that you might give us more of the peace and the comfort and the joy that comes as we praise your Son, as we hear his good news. We confess to you that our hearts are prideful. Our hearts are impressed with our own reputations, our own names. Our, our hearts care little for the grace that you give, but they need it desperately. So we ask that you give us more of these things. Comfort us and give us your peace and your joy. Let us see more of the Son's fullness as we worship Him this morning, as we hear from your word. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Years ago, Kara and I were at a wedding reception, and it was one that had a sit-down dinner. And the entertainment actually came to our table. They didn't know it, but it was very entertaining. A guy that, grew, that Kara had grown up with sat himself down next to an attorney that was at our table. He had recently taken a job as a car salesman at a Toyota dealership. And so he sat down on purpose so that he could launch into his spiel. He was at a wedding, but he was also working the room. I think I've told you this before, but I sold cars while Kara was in grad school. So watching a salesman, especially a car salesman, is kind of like going to the zoo for me. It's like watching a monkey play on a tire swing, especially the new guys, especially the ones that lay it on thick, and he was laying it on thick. So he started in. What are you driving now? You know, you kind of look like a forerunner man to me. You like leather interior? And the attorney, trying to be polite, old friends with this young man, said, I'm really not interested. I mean, why would I spend the money? Oh, no, no, no. I I think you can afford it. You do well for yourself, right? No, look, I already have two Toyotas. I don't need a third. I knew you were a smart man. I knew you'd own something as high quality as a Toyota. I'm not surprised that you own two, but it sure would be nice to have a new one, wouldn't it? This guy was walking around, working the room, sizing up guests, and deciding who was worth his time, who was worth his company, who could repay his conversation with a favor. There's a lot of jockeying at banquets. There's a lot of sizing up at dinner parties. And the one that Jesus has just entered is no different. In fact, he's getting sized up before he even makes it through the door. Before we ever get into the story, we start sizing up the difficulty of the parables. When we think about trying to take on these parables, 
It's a little daunting for us. In just 24 verses, we have an entire story, an entire narrative that includes argument and confrontation. It has healing. It has three parables. All in just 24 little verses. So if it's all right with you, I'd like to run us through the story as quickly as I can, not to miss the substance of it, but to get us to this last parable, the most offensive, the most confusing, the most difficult riddle in the story. So bear with me. Here we go. Jesus enters a house under scrutiny. The text says that they were watching him carefully as he entered. It wasn't once he got there. It wasn't after he entered. This, it actually says, upon entering, they were watching him carefully. It's one of those moments when everyone pretends to continue their conversations, but the music seems to stop. Every eye's on him, and just inside the door, there's a man with a disgusting, bloating disease. It's as if everyone in the room saw this guy standing there in the entry, and then they looked out the window, and they saw Jesus coming up the walk. And they thought, I wonder what he's going to do with this. I've heard this Jesus is a real upstart, and this guy obviously wants and needs healing, but it's the Sabbath. I want to see how this is going to play out. So notice verse 2 says that Jesus responded to all of them, but no one said a thing. He's answering all of their anxious stares. He knows every eye is on him, and so he answers, he responds with action. A lot of you have the word lawful in your translation. Is it lawful? We read it like it says, is it permissible? But it's probably better to translate it proper or fitting. Is it proper? Is it fitting? Is it appropriate to the occasion to heal someone like this on the Lord's day of rest? So Jesus moves quickly to answer the question. He takes him, he heals him, and he sends him on his way because he's making a statement. He's saying, of course it's appropriate. It's so appropriate, it would be inappropriate not to extend the Lord's rest, not to extend the Lord's healing on this, His Sabbath, His day of rest, His day of restoration. It would be inappropriate not to. Of course it's fitting. And He scolds them by pointing out that they wouldn't even hesitate to expend ten times this amount of effort to help livestock in a well. But he gets anxious looks and jeers for doing it for one of their own countrymen. And that's when the story gets good. In verse 7, the tables get turned, actually. Jesus, the guy who five minutes ago was walking in under examination, Jesus, who was being watched to see if they could find fault, starts taking a look around the room, and he starts telling them what's wrong as he finds it. He starts confronting problems every time he runs across one. He didn't have to look far. Everywhere he turns, there's a problem, and he addresses it. But he's not giving them instructions about proper conduct at parties. Notice that Luke calls these things parables, starting with the very first one, which means his statements might escape everybody at the party, but they can't escape us. They may have no idea what he's actually saying, But we know there's more. We know that Jesus is telling them way more than he's actually saying with his words. So first he addresses the guest. He says, 
He says these things to them as he sees the way that they posture and honor themselves. The way they take top-notch seats at the table. He tells them to knock it off. He says, when you go to a party, sit at the kids' table. Wait to get promoted, he says. This has nothing to do with place cards and seating arrangements. It has everything to do with all the ways that they dastardly maneuver and muscle for rank as they move through life. The ways that they stretch and strain with each other and with God just to reach around and pat themselves on the back. Jesus is telling them they need to put down their pride. They need to pick up and carry with them at all times humility because only God exalts the lowly. God promises to humble the exalted. So then as he turns back around, the host is standing there and he's keeping his mouth shut, but he's smirking because he's just watched as all of his company got it for being poor guests. He's glad he didn't get included. So when Jesus turns around, he says, And you, when you're putting together a shindig like this one, don't sit down and make out a guest list full of VIPs like you did. Don't invite all the C and B scenes that you want to impress, all the people you want in your social debt. And again, this isn't about the way that we manage our social calendar. Jesus isn't necessarily addressing the company this man keeps. He's talking to him about kingdom hospitality. Among the A-list, hospitality is a currency. It's something that the jet set trades back and forth so they can climb the ladder together. The names you include on your roster for your party help you make a name for yourself. We all know it. Jesus says divine hospitality, the hospitality that you and I have been shown in the incarnation when Christ invites himself to come and to be God with us, this is a kindness that can never be repaid. This hospitality isn't meant to put us in debt. Jesus didn't come to put us in his debt. He came to forgive the debt we owe. So Jesus is saying to them, be changed by this kind of hospitality and show it to others. Don't do this for your reward. Do it for their good. Be kind to them because they need it. Not because they can buy it back from you later. It's not something you give out on loan. And so right here, He's either running for cover or trying to draw fire, and I'm not entirely sure which. This voice pipes up at the back of the room. All the way at the back, you hear someone yell, God bless us, everyone! At least that's how it sounds to us at first. It sounds kind of like a diversion. I don't think that it is. I used to read this passage like this guy was trying to segue into something a little safer, a little more abstract. Come on, Jesus, let's just cool down. Let's talk about theology. That's not what he's doing. The more I read it, the more I'm convinced. That's not this guy's plan at all. This isn't a diversion. 
This is a guy who thinks he and Jesus are going to set all of these other wayward souls on the straight and narrow. It's kind of like he just chimes in. All of a sudden, he breaks in and says, Hear, hear. Listen, guys, Jesus is right. You've got to listen to him. I mean, isn't the most profound and significant thing that we will all eat bread in the kingdom of God? And this is what really catches Jesus' attention. More than all the self-exaltation, more than all the bad inviting, it's this statement, this redirection that gives us this third parable. Two weeks ago, Jesus offered up a parable because he was at a dinner and everyone had disdain for this uninvited sinner. And this week, we have this parable because all of the invited guests can't stop congratulating themselves. So when this guy chimes in to help Jesus out, to lend him a hand and show that he's on his side, Jesus turns around and says, you want to talk about the kingdom? Let's talk. And this is what confuses us about Jesus. This is what confuses us so often because we expect him to walk into all of these sort of tense situations and diffuse them. As the Prince of Peace, we expect him to swoop in to things that are awkward and smooth them over. We want Jesus to be a gifted diplomat. We want him to pacify and to pander. He doesn't always do this. He did come to be our peace, but Jesus also said that he was bringing a sword. We don't see him use it everywhere, but his redemption requires that he disrupt the curse. His redemption is going to be more than just replanting and tending creation. There are times that he will have to take out his sword and hack down thorns. Even the generations old, gnarled, and knotted ones. Sometimes, even at parties like this one, just when we want Jesus to make nice, he sees thorns. He sees things that need disruption. And so he pulls out his sword and he starts hacking. So that's why he starts in on this third parable. From the start, he takes on all the Pharisees, all of the religious lawyers, all of them. Whether they're in the passage with Jesus or in the theater with us, or in our homes, in the seat next to us, or in the mirror. They may not know it yet, but he is serving notice with the very first line. What we want is a parable that starts off, the kingdom of God is like a military base. It's rigid and regimented, but if you can abide order, if you like organization and rules, if you're clean cut, then you can live here and thrive. That's not what he says. Or maybe he should have started off, the kingdom of God is like a picnic. You can come, but it's not being catered. You're going to have to pack up your own righteousness. In fact, those of you who have extra, you know who you are. Those of you with extra, bring some more to share. There are people with less than you, and they'll need some of your own private stash. 
So pack well. He doesn't say it's like a picnic either. He doesn't say any of these things. The first, from the first line through the end, Jesus says the kingdom of God is a lavish banquet. It has been set by all the delights of his grace. And if you deserve to come, then you won't be allowed in. Instead, the most unlikely and the most unlikable people are getting in. That's what it's like. You want to talk about the kingdom of God? There it is. That's not what we wanted to hear. That's not what the guests wanted to hear. That's not what the host wanted to hear. It's certainly not what the budding theologian wanted to hear when he piped up to show Jesus he was on his side. The joy and the celebration of a banquet should thrill us. As he walks through this story, it feels a little bit like a dark comedy, doesn't it? I mean, actually knowing what the banquet is, knowing that Jesus is telling a story to, to explain to us what the kingdom is like, makes it so much more disturbing to watch so many guests turn down their invitations. They turn down invitations to this banquet just so they can have the crumbs of daily life. Many interpreters through the centuries and even recently have tried to pin down exactly what all of these excuses might represent. You have a real estate deal, you've got livestock in the middle, a new marriage... All of these people knew that the banquet was coming up. It was on their calendars, on the fridge at home. They just let other plans crowd it out. I mean, it at least seems like the guy with the new wife could just update his RSVP with a plus one, right? But Jesus is clear in the story. These aren't mistakes. This isn't that they marked it down on the wrong date. He says, they all alike began to make excuses. These aren't real reasons that prevent them from going. They just want a way out. When the servant comes to get them and says, the banquet is ready. The master has prepared it. It's served. Let's go. And suddenly they're stuck. Suddenly they want out. So they start explaining to him that they got stuck in a meeting. They're going to have to work late. They couldn't find a sitter or their sitter canceled. They have to wash their hair. You understand these things. It's not that they want to go, but oh darn, it just didn't work out. These are their escape hatches. They really think they're dodging a bullet with these things. But what are they? Are the land and the oxen really supposed to represent commerce? Is the marriage really supposed to be representative of all human relationships? Are these things supposed to be categories for the idols that we keep? I don't think so. I think these are just idols. Giving them categories and arranging them makes everything about them just a little too organized and a little too sophisticated. I think they're just our idols. They don't deserve impressive names or labels. They don't deserve neat and impressive organization. 
These are just our silly, embarrassing, not worth it idols. And our idols, all of our idols are just crumbs. The stale and moldy things that we gorge ourselves on when we should be feasting. It's sad for us to see people never enter the banquet because they are satisfied with these crumbs. But it's even more ridiculous. It's even sadder for those of us who have already entered the banquet. Those of us who just have to have a taste of our sin. It's sadder when we slip away from the table to rifle through the dumpster in the alley. So whether these belong to the people who never make it in, or whether it's a return trip for people who belong and keep sneaking out to get them, crumbs are just crumbs. Our idols are always silly and cheap replacements for the feast that is God himself. I think it's too easy for us to label them work and family. Because something about those idols sounds noble. Something about those labels make them sound a little like too much of a good thing. It's better just call them their real names. Selfish pride, reputation, comfort, and quick pleasure. These are just idols, they're just crumbs. Don't dress them up. Don't label them anything sophisticated. They are silly and cheap. And the most disturbing part of the whole story isn't who declines the invitation. It's not even why they decline. The most disturbing part of the whole story, the part that Jesus intends to be the most disturbing is the way the host starts bussing in all the wrong replacements for his guests. You and I know this table is supposed to be filled with well-dressed socialites and businessmen and great conversationalists that can hold your attention. This kind of affair is reserved for people with refined palates, people who appreciate the finer things in life. The kingdom is supposed to be filled with the religious elite. Isn't it? Isn't it for men and women with prestigious degrees in theology? Impeccable moral records? Regular tithers, people with discerning homiletical tastes who know good preaching from bad. Isn't the kingdom for people who put Calvin in their email signature and Jesus in their Facebook status? The summer before we were married, Kara took a week-long trip to Italy. She went with her sister and two other women. And they were enjoying themselves in the Italian pace of life, with food and leisure. And they were sitting outside in a piazza. Sun shining and wine poured. They'd sat down for a late afternoon lunch with pasta and cheese. And out of nowhere, in the middle of conversation, this arm shot over Kara's shoulder. The hand and the wrist were black from body oil and dirt and a stench that was almost visible. It reached into one of the bowls, grabbed a fistful of pesto, and the man ran off into the crowd. It was a gypsy. 
He stole food and money and clothes as he needed them. He drifted around in a group probably, sometimes by himself to avoid trouble. Hygiene and manners and social station, none of those things are priorities for this man. When you're a gypsy, you don't care about doing things the right way or being the right kind of anything. And in Jesus' story, the master of the feast sends his servant to gather guests like this. Parents with children in rehab and children who look for salvation at the bottom of pill bottles and women whose husbands leave them for a bachelor's lifestyle or worse and the men who leave their families And angry people who carry around grudges like they're accessories. And miserable perfectionists who know all too well their own imperfection. The wrong kinds of people, guests like this. He sends them out to the streets for the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. People who rob dumpsters for dinner and burn trash to keep warm in the winter. The people who don't dress well, instead they wear tattered rags, whatever they can find. At the party they eat with their hands. Who cares if it's pate and duck and 75-year-old port? These people are going to ruin it. They're going to shovel it in and gulp it like they're stealing it. Ah, and that's the beauty of it. They're not stealing any of it. It's been given to them. They're guests. They're not stealing a drop. They're not stealing a morsel. This has been served to them on white linen tablecloths, with gloved hands, on silver platters. And of course they eat fast at first. It's because they came starving. They may take two to three courses, but they're going to get full. And the longer they sit at this table, the more satisfied they are. The longer they sit at this table, the more they're able to slow down and savor it. Over time, these people start to discern. Now they have refined palates, but better than any of those excuse-making, beautiful people ever could. They didn't come in because they were the right kind of people. This party, this banquet is filled with the wrong kind of people made right. Not well-bred, not trained at a finishing school and refined before coming, but fed on grace and trained at the feast. The awkward beauty of this story, the great thing about the master of the feast bringing these people into the kingdom of God So that's a very simple, very offending, very beautiful story of election. It's not God going around and collecting the regimented and the disciplined. He's not out gathering the worthy people with pedigrees. This story is about God choosing and insisting to host and feed the disheveled, the unworthy the unthinkable. Election means that we don't boast in our fitness for the feast. 
We don't boast about our deserving to be there because we know that we don't. We don't hoard the invitations for it either. We aren't some privileged class. We're just gypsies who've been found and compelled by grace. Now we feast on it. And it fills us and it changes our tastes. Paul explains election to us in 1 Corinthians by telling us that God has chosen the weak and the foolish things of this world to receive His mercy. But in this story, Jesus doesn't just tell us about it. We get to see it clearly. We can feel all of our weakness. Don't miss your place in the story. We are the poor, blind, crippled, and lame. We are the ones with no means, no ability... We're the ones with spiritual joints that refuse to work, with feet that stumble, with weak faith and needy hearts. We don't come in like good guests with a bottle of wine and a thank you note ready. We don't bring anything to the housewarming. We're just gypsies, compelled to come into the banquet. Not only do we get to feel our weakness, not only do we get to see how unfit we are for the feast of God's kingdom, but in this same little story, we get to taste all of it. Fed on grace and trained at the feast, we start to savor it. All of it. Most importantly, God Himself, the adoring love of the Father, salvation of the Son, the fellowship of the Spirit, these things are served to us at the feast. And then as we look down the table, everything else that fills it, the courses listed out in order so we know what to expect. Reading the menu is like reading the last stanza of the Apostles' Creed. Here we feast and enjoy all the benefits of the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That is what is spread out before us in this feast. And we said it together in our opening liturgy that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It really meant every. And it really meant good. Nothing, nothing necessary, nothing delicious has been withheld from us. It's all been served to us by the Son. It's given to us at the feast. Skeptics, we are glad that you come to be with us week after week. This last little parable has a lot for you. In fact, this parable has everything for you. Don't see the kingdom of God as something austere and oppressive. Jesus says it's a banquet because it's supposed to be enjoyed. Don't hear his invitation as a call to be better. He's not telling you that you have to be religiously proper and polished to get in. It might be offensive to you, but see yourself as poor and blind and lame. Because in doing that, there's good news. Your own weakness isn't disqualifying It's required. Let this parable compel you to come in. 
Not compelled in the sense of arm twisting and manipulation. Compelled by the goodness. The free and full provision of God's kingdom feast. Laid out and joyfully served to unworthy feasters. This parable has implications for evangelism. But that's not really what it's about. We've already made the point that we are the poor, blind, lame, and crippled in the story. So as you walk out of here this morning, don't get confused and try to write yourself in as the part of the servant. That's not the first and most important reading of this story. This is the Father's feast. The real beauty of this parable as it's told is that it's Jesus telling it. It's Jesus, the Holy One who took on the form of a servant, telling it. The Father sent Him out to fill His house. Jesus is the one sent to vagrants and beggars and gypsies like us. And as He tells the story, He's doing the job of the servant. He's condemning those with excuse and he's compelling others to come in. And even more beautiful than that is really catching a glimpse of what his second trip out looks like. Did you see it? He's sent back out. This time he's supposed to run along the highways all the way to the end, all the way to the barriers, the walls, the hedges. The word that gets used there is the same one that Paul uses in Ephesians 2. When he talks about our restoration, our being brought to God when Jesus removes the barrier at the cross. In that little line, that second trip out, Jesus the servant is sent running down the highway all the way to the cross, removing the barrier for those who have been blocked compelling us to come in, compelling us to come in and dine and to feast. He whets our appetite for the feast. We're fed on His grace and we're trained there. We savor all of it, most importantly, God Himself. The newly given love of the Father, the salvation of the Son, and the fellowship of the Spirit. Eat and enjoy. Amen. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe at your beauty, the beauty of the awkward and difficult stories that you tell, that you didn't ask us to establish our own worthiness, Your father set a banquet and he didn't put a bouncer at the door and said he sent you out as a servant to gather all of us unworthy beggars and vagrants and gypsies, poor and blind and lame and crippled, spiritually out of joint and completely unable. And as a joyful servant, you ran out along the highways, along the roads, to all us undeserving. 
by your grace, you compel us to come in. Oh, Jesus, this is way too good for us. We know how much we don't deserve it. We can't even really imagine it. But you compel us to come in. You sit us at your table. And you serve us the Father's feast. Jesus, would you fill us with the things of your feast? Fill us with your grace. Let us see our lives nourished by your holiness, our appetites changed, our palates trained to enjoy your goodness, to say no to the crumbs of our idols. Would you do these things for us because we can't do them for ourselves? as you've brought us to the banquet, you have grown in us a taste for these good things. Fill us with more of them for your own glory. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.